Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Uh, first of all, welcome back Vaughn. We missed you on the last show. Um, do you feel you missed out on talking about Richard Nixon? I feel like you're lying to me and I don't think you did miss me because I think you two probably had way more fun just vibing on Nixon than you would have if I were there to to interrupt that that love fest there was a lot less booing when we were talking about nixon than when you're normally on the show so i did appreciate that that quiet yeah Um, i am sad i missed it though well luckily you're here for this uh dive into uh current politics um we were actually planning on doing a, a history show today but um we had a change of heart simply because there's so much news in uh, <laughs> in the world right now. And specifically, and most importantly, it's exactly one year to the day since Rudy Giuliani turned up to give a press conference at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping Car Park in Pennsylvania. Um, so yes, so we decided to give Vaughn some alcohol and uh, discuss <laughs> those, uh, that bewildering event and some other bewildering events in American politics. Um before we get into this topic, I just wanted to read a line from the Wikipedia page about this. It says, The unexpected site of the press conference, a local landscaping business located near a sex shop and a crematorium, led to speculation that the Trump campaign meant to book the upscale Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia, five city blocks in Pennsylvania at Convention Center, where Pennsylvania's, uh, or, sorry, where Philadelphia's ballots were being counted shortly after Giuliani began talking to the assembled reporters the Associated Press projected Biden as the winner of Pennsylvania and thus nationwide election several news outlets characterized the event as symbolic as the symbolic end of Trump's presidency so that's kind of a nice summation of that um, before we go into it, I just want to first of all state that as always there's no negative light as far as sex shops and sex workers and they're much more important to society than convention centers ever have been. Um, yes, yes okay. Simon. I know. Love okay. that. Okay, so let's get into this, Vaughn. This holds very. This holds a very special place in your heart. Um, can you tell us just thinking back to the events as they took place at the time, and also your your thoughts on them now, one year on? I I have been thinking about this a lot this week because my my memories on my um, on my Facebook and my my uh, photos app and everything, they've been reminding me heartily of the election week and how it was Tuesday for six days. Um, and that was a time to be alive and to be <laughs> watching the news incessantly. And I was marking at the time um, and teaching classes and like checking electoral class uh, maps every time I put students in like breakout groups or something. (laughs) So yeah, it was wild. And then just the sheer happiness that I felt when, when Philly was announced and when Rudy Giuliani was in the Four Seasons Total Landscaping car park, it just was this like overwhelming elation after such a horrible week. And I really, I really love that Rudy gave that to us. And it's 
all year it has just been every time I think about it it's this little light spot where I'm like that really happened that really really happened four seasons total landscaping and does it mean more to you the fact it happened in Pennsylvania oh my god absolutely like not even Pennsylvania Philadelphia specifically that's the funniest shit I've ever heard like (laughs) like four seasons total landscaping the company have been milking this all year and I'm like more power to you they're selling merch they're like every time something happens with Trump in the news or Rudy Giuliani in the news uh like when the feds uh like tore up Rudy's office um Four Seasons Total Landscaping tweets about it and like has some kind of snide joke about it and it just we deserve that after the hellscape that has been the last two years and really all of the years but it just we it makes me happy that Philly is so integral to the political conversation in the country at the moment <laughs> because of Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Um, Toby from a sort of on the ground perspective did you have any sympathy for the republicans uh appearing to book the uh the wrong arena for their uh um, political speech or did, were you just uh finding it all too funny well you know as, as someone who fucks up quite often <laughs> you know like i i i looked at that and i thought oh jesus thank god it wasn't it wasn't me it wasn't me who did that <laughs> Um, and, and so, yeah, I did have, I did have some sympathy. Um, you know, you can't help, but have, have some sympathy for, um, because there was so much happening as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was the stuff with, you know, Mike Pence, obviously Trump, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was, there was too much happening at that time. And and I think, um, I, I was particularly upset by how, Luigi Giuliani was portrayed in that, you know, it, it, it really seemed like a sad moment for him, you know, all the, the, the glories of his, his <laughs> career in New York, you know, saving um, New York from 9-11 and when he kicked the, the plane into the air, tremendous. And, and, now, and now look at him, you know, I, I thought, yeah, I thought it was, a, it was a terrible moment, but also like, you know, there's, there's a sort of like candy fascist thing about the movie, you know, it was, it was a, also like a deeply, uh, incompetent moment that made what was happening seem a lot less, you know, important. I think is like there was always a way that, like, a tr- the Trump and the Trump campaign and the people around uh, Giuliani, they always provided us with some sort of like, you know, catharsis and, um, you know, like laughter, many of the things that they did. And it was just another example of that. Yeah. So that, 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 those were my, my, my general feelings about, about that. Uh, being, being, being on the ground uh, myself, obviously it wasn't me who organized it, you know, <laughs> um, that would, you know, that was someone else. I don't want to be blamed for, for what happened, but yeah, no, I did feel bad. Certainly. That was the other Toby Aloe who did that. No, no, it was it wasn't him. It wasn't him. Ah. <laughs> Jeez, yes, it is um, funny to think it's it's one year on, um, just the general shit show of that election, of the fallout from it, of Republicans not conceding, and then of course of January sixth. Um, it is, in some ways, it feels much longer, and in another way, it seems like it, it was just a few weeks ago. It, it's yeah, it's it's very odd. No, it feels like ages ago to me. It does. Like, it does. Like it was like years ago. Really, because in some sense it does feel a while ago, but the other sense, 
I still remember us like having the conversation like immediately after the election and my worry that Trump had won and Toby playing it all cool, going, oh, no, it's fine. You know, we've, <laughs> we've got this, these extra fraudulent votes that I've put through for, yeah, for Biden. Nice. They're, they're you don't need in. to worry, man. Yeah, it's fine. It's all sorted, you know. So even though it does seem a while ago, and that's, I, I still have those very fresh memories of, of Toby handing in those extra ballots across the, across the various states. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, shall we, have we got anything else to add on this, or shall we move on to our first um, current story? Okay. I feel like I've been in a Four Seasons Total landscaping parking lot for a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like emotionally. I'm not physically in a Four Seasons Total landscaping parking lot, but I am emotionally. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, I was going to make a joke that it's not the first time you've been between a sex shop and a crematorium, but um, let's... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> let's move on. Uh, right okay uh so virginia um they had uh, an election for um governor and um as they often do the democrats fucked it up um so we had uh glenn uh, youngkin i think is, is how you say his name um won the uh, won the race and won it fairly comfortably i think in the end um I suppose the big thing to come out of this was the different approaches that uh, both sides had where Republicans were hitting this on a very sort of grand level and talking about, you know, critical race theory and trying to promote this idea that parents should have more control over the students' educations and Democrats were, you know, still pretending it was 1992 and everything they could say back then was, you know, um, relevant today. So it was kind of a nice crystallization of Democrats just kind of fucking up and just being terrible and then um republicans kind of getting a, a message out there which seemed to hit a nerve with the voters um von what, what was your kind of reaction from all of this and specifically the race itself and then kind of thoughts um looking ahead as to what it might mean for future elections so <clears throat> my initial thoughts are that the media has painted this as a nightmare and like quoting them a nightmare and a bloodbath and all of these kind of horrific things. The media is going insane about Virginia and also New Jersey, uh, who both elected Republicans. But it is extremely important to remember that Virginia and New Jersey have a very strong history of voting in a governor against whoever just won presidency, hmm. um, voting in the opposite party. So it's really not that that shocking historically or tragic of a situation for Democrats, but the media is painting it as such. And I think it's very easy to believe those narratives because <clears throat> we kind of want to, I mean, well, there's a lot of pressure on Joe Biden at the moment, which we'll talk a lot about today, but I don't think that these, these elections were necessarily the kind of horrific show that that people are saying there were other elections on Tuesday that did pretty historic things and in favor of democratic policies and progressive candidates um Boston elected Michelle Wu as mayor she's the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants and she is the first person to not be a white man who is elected 
mayor of Boston in all of Boston's history, which is 199 years of having a mayor. So that is, that is groundbreaking. Um, New York City elected the Democratic Eric Adams, who was the, the president of Brooklyn Borough. And he is the second uh, ever black mayor of New York City. Detroit decriminalized magic mushrooms. So like other things happened on Tuesday and the media is just hell bent on projecting Virginia as the most important race and then New Jersey. I don't think it necessarily was, but there are a lot of things that came out of the race in Virginia that we do need to talk about in terms of the election or the, yeah, the elections in the midterms next year in 2022 that Democrats can learn from this, this election. But the precedent is that they vote with the opposite party in power. So it shouldn't be that shocking of a result. It wasn't that large of a margin. It was, I mean, there was a margin, but it was still kind of narrow. Um, the Democrat was still getting many votes in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, not, it's not as dire as people are saying, I think. I guess just because, I mean, Biden carried the state so comfortably. Um, at the 2020 yeah. election and now as you say the narrative in the media is that things have started to turn against Biden and we have an election where you know Obama turned up for that one and you know it was Biden can spoke confidently about about winning it and instead we had a Republican victory which was kind of shaped around Republicans being able to shape the message and shape the narrative of the election in the way they wanted rather than the Democrats doing it the way they wanted, which I guess could be a bellwether for for what the future elections may happen. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Republicans had a clear campaign goal and they they used it and they, they really nailed their campaign and Democrats did falter a lot. I'm not dismissing that at all. Um, as I said, I think we can learn a lot of a lot from this election going into the midterms, especially around kind of cultural topics that are happening. And as you said, not using 1992 talking points um, 30 years on. <clears throat> there, there was um, for, for Youngkin, he used critical race theory in an expert way to rally the Republican base and McAuliffe stumbled a lot on that. Um, I don't think he was really expecting it and wasn't ready to combat it. And I think, I think that that is something that we should talk about now um, and looking forward to kind of Republican politics in the future. Cause that, that is something that we've, we've talked about. Um, We talked when Toby and I first started the podcast and since you joined in Vaughn as well about this idea of Republicans focusing in on culture wars rather Mm -hmm. than necessarily on uh, actually governing and uh, republicans have been very strong on, on that recently you know uh, be it you know trans people in bathrooms or you know f- fighting to reduce you know rights of certain people or to take away abortion rights or you know to, to take away um um well in this instance is take take away critical race theory from primary school education which you know is mm. you know, not a thing that's happening anyway but um it's it's a continued effort by Republicans to make sure that they are able to win elections out of fear and to rally their base. Um, because as we've said for a long time, Republicans 
really they don't have anything of any intellectual note to contribute anymore um th- there's no one really um with any sense paying attention to them when it comes to you know trickle down economics or anything like that you know the war on what republicans are actually saying from a uh, intelligence standpoint you know it's getting whittled away year by year decade by decade even to the point where you know i think more people are inclusive of things like climate change now being real on you know those kind of denials um kind of whimpering away to some degree or another and so we we've now got this just you know continued attack on things like critical race theory which is a republican talking point that will come about from a a think tank which will say right voters are people first and then party allegiance second so um we can probably a rally our base but then b pick away from people in the center who are you know worried parents first and um you know politically aligned to maybe the democrats in a soft way secondly so they've obviously were very successful in, in this instance and i guess moving forward we'll see whether or not the republicans are going to be able to well a will they repeat this on a national scale um or is this more of a sort of a, a local type uh, election strategy um but we should probably kind of touch on critical race theory a little bit itself just to kind of give some context because it is something that gets bandied around a lot these days but um we actually have a an academic with us so um Vaughn do you want to just talk us through a little bit about critical race theory and I think you might have an example or two of of, uh, of what that is as well yes um I Yes, I have quite a structured kind of thing for critical race theory that I'm going to walk through. Um, First, I'm going to talk about why this came up in the campaign in terms of um, an ad that Glenn Youngkin ran with Toni Morrison's Beloved. And I am going to spoil the ending of Beloved. So if you haven't read it and you don't want it spoiled, maybe skip ahead a little bit. Um, I'll also talk about the foundations and history of critical race theory as an academic theory. And then I will talk about how we use it in history and what it means for the public. Um, And then we'll get into why Republicans are using it and how. So to begin with, this, this all kind of started because Glenn Youngkin used an ad, he ran an ad with a mother who was talking about how her high school senior son had a nightmare because he read Beloved in school. And this kind of narrative we hear all the time of parents saying, my child came home from school after her teacher taught her critical race theory and now she's afraid that she's racist. That is not how critical race theory works and I am going to explain that. But with Beloved, if you've not read it, it is a brilliant and heartbreaking novel by Toni Morrison. And it is about an enslaved woman named Seth uh, in the American South. And it covers the horrors of, of slavery that she experiences. The spoiler for the ending is that she chooses to kill her baby, her baby daughter, rather than have her subjected to rape and other violent and horrific realities of American slavery. This is a book that a lot of American seniors have read. Um, I read it in high school. It's it's a difficult read, but it is a necessary read, I think. Um, 
I am not one in favor of banning books at all, surprisingly, but I think it's absolutely abhorrent to suggest banning Beloved because it is it is something that can explain the horrors of enslaved peoples in the American South in a way that no other text can, in my opinion, or that I have read of any other text. Um, Toni Morrison does a brilliant job with showing how American slavery has lasting trauma for Black communities in the U.S. and how these things are still relevant today. There, there are a lot of timeless qualities to Beloved that white students can't understand because we are not part of that community and we don't have that collective trauma. So I think it's important to expose white people to this book specifically and all of Toni Morrison's work because Toni Morrison is brilliant. So that's the context for what happened in this election. Glenn Youngkin used, ran this ad and McAuliffe absolutely stumbled. He condemned uh, Youngkin's use of this ad and he handed out copies of Beloved at a rally. And that was really kind of it. He didn't really have a, a solid stance on critical race theory or countering this, this cultural kind of narrative. And I think that really adds to why he lost. On this cultural narrative, let's get into what critical race theory actually means. Um, I'm going to use definitions and a bit of structuring from David Gilborn and Gloria Ladson Billings article, Critical Race Theory in Sage Research Methods. Um, I can post a link to it if anybody wants to read the original text and decide these things for themselves, but this is briefly what critical race theory means and the history of it. So the first thing to note is that racism Racism in critical race theory is defined as the social structuring and not the individual hatred. So what I mentioned a moment ago of parents saying that critical race theory is making their kids think that they're racist, they're full of shit. Critical race theory is about the systemic structures and the legal structures of racism within the US. Its origins are in US legal studies from the 70s and 80s. There is something else called critical legal studies um, that was very prominent in the 70s as an opposition to conservative mainstream perspectives on the law, but it focused largely on social class and tended to ignore race and racism, race inequity, um, intersection between social class and race, all of these things. So in response, many theorists and lawyers and legal minds, including Derek Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Harris, Charles Lawrence, Patricia Williams, and many others, they founded critical race theory to focus on areas of race and race inequity and racism within the structures of the US. The group of theorists who came up with critical race theory are diverse and from a range of racial identities. So if you hear on, on Republican media that critical race theory is just quoting just a thing of 
that are created by black people, it is not. Um, it focuses on the black and other minority community experiences within the US legal stru uh, structure. Derek Bell um, established the term racial realism in constructing critical race theory. Racial realism, quoting from this article, is a determination to continually interrogate the workings of race and racism in the real world, rather than as a thought experiment or speculative hypotheses removed from the material reality of life, end quote. So critical race theory is, is much larger than just individual racism. It is looking at how people experience their lives under these US systems that are built on prejudice and with a history of white supremacy in our very distant past, um, in relatively, our distant past in the US. So, continuing um, from this article, it's an international theory and it is interdiscipline in social sciences. It, it has gained prominence in these other fields after the 70s and 80s when it was really established. Fields such as sociology, political science, education, and history. In 1993, Lawrence, Matsuda, Delgado, and Crenshaw published um, an, an article on the foundation foundations of legal CRT. And they are one that CRT recognizes that racism is endemic to American life. Two, CRT expresses skepticism toward dominant legal claims of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. Three, CRT challenges ahistoricism and insists on a contextual history, sorry, historical analysis of the law. Four, CRT insists on recognition of the experiential knowledge of people of color. Five, CRT is interdisciplinary and eclectic. And six, CRT works towards the end of eliminating racial oppression as part of the broader goal of ending all forms of oppression. These, these kind of um, foundational points of CRT are for the legal, legal study of it. And they have been adapted in history as a theory that we can view history from. Um, there's one other quote I want to use from this article that critical race theorists view race as a complex and changing socially structured, structured phenomenon. CRT views racism as including actions, beliefs, and policies that are much more extensive and subtle than crude, obvious forms of race discrimination. Much CRT focuses on the complex and hidden processes that have the effect of discriminating regardless of their stated intent. So all of this is to say that critical race theory is a legal matter. It is a legal theory used to look at structures within the US 
look at documents and policies that have been made and figure out how they may be disproportionately advantageous to white people or specifically disproportionately disadvantageous to non-white citizens of the US. Shifting over a bit to think about history specifically, some context here is that we use theory in higher education history and academic history to reanalyze things that people have already analyzed, essentially. It's bringing a different perspective to events in history so that we can get closer to an understanding of those events. Um, I'll use an example of theoretical foundations. A Marxist historian is not necessarily a Marxist politically. Um, Marxist historians study structures and superstructures in Western societies and the power dynamics between classes within those structures. I am a Marxist historian and I look at the ideological state apparatuses of cultural media and government agencies influencing those media outputs. I apply Marxist theory, specifically I use Gramsci and Althusser to the history of Hollywood in my era to analyze the cultural impacts of politically subversive media. I'm bringing this up to say that CRT is just a way of viewing history and that almost every academic and almost every historian uses some sort of theory in their history. Um, it's more common than not, I would say. It's for tertiary scholarship. It is for higher education. It is for academics and scholars. It is not, not something that we use in primary and secondary education. The conclusions of academic work using CRT to re-examine American history may be things that influence curricula, but we are not using CRT to write curricula directly. Um, I'll give a further example of what exactly applying CRT means. So I study Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life, right? It was released in 1946 and was the subject of a 1947 FBI report for allegedly communi communist undertones. The film depicts a nearly all white cast and was marked, marketed as a romantic love story despite the overarching tone and message being much darker concerning a small town banker in a financial crisis against the town's wealthy miser. That is a straightforward description of It's a Wonderful Life. And it could be in any lower level cultural history textbook, that sentence. Advanced historical scholarship looks at the fact that the, uh, the fact, that fact and the film. So that fact about what the film is and applies different theories to it. One of my Marxist critiques of what It's a Wonderful Life is would be, for example, the FBI alleges communist subversion. 
However, the film has an overtly pro-capitalist message, pitting two bankers against each other and arguing for a more compassionate form of capitalism that helps the townspeople pr provide for themselves and their families. This mes messaging resonated with a post-depression and post-war audience who may have had a lasting distrust of banks and governments and the government's ability to ensure financial security. That is an example from my dissertation. If we were to apply CRT to the same example, it would read something like, the film depicts townspeople and immigrants receiving help from the local financial institutions. However, only one black person is featured in the film who is relegated to a servile role as was common in the period and who is never shown receiving the same aid other residents in the town are given. The film reflects Hollywood's cultural views towards African-Americans in the immediate post-war period by specifically having a single black character in a role of comedic relief. So the difference there is that we are looking at the structural disadvantage of African-Americans in American history. This isn't something to be feared or to be blown into kind of political discourse. It is not something that is being taught in class uh, to elementary school students. It is a way of analyzing history and we do it all the time with many different theories. Feminism is a theory or a theoretical stance um, that you can take in history. There's, there's Marxism, there's postmodern, there's um, wider gender theory. Like there, there are so many different theories that we use constantly and critical race theory is just one of them. So for the Republicans to be using this as their kind of dog whistle in this election and what they will do in the next election in the midterms is to blow this wildly out of proportion and say that schools are teaching your white children that they are racist. And we know that because that's what they've been doing for the last two years. I just spent about what, 10 minutes explaining what critical race theory is. And genuinely, I don't think it actually matters because Republicans are going to use this anyway. And, and Democrats need a better response than that's not what it is. And it's not like, you're wrong because Republicans will not respond to that. I do not know what the correct response is. I think my only stance that I can take is explaining it over and over again, as I have that example that I just used is something that I have used hundreds of times in conversations with people about critical race theory. So, I don't know what you guys have to say about this, about any of critical race theory that I have just explained or oh. what we can do about it with Republicans using it against the public as a culture war without any understanding of what it is or it's masterful what they've done really. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And I think this is something we'll no doubt study kind of looking back and saying, all right, you know, this was a successful ploy. Um, before I touch on my own thoughts on this, thank you for that, Vaughn. That was helpful that as, as someone who doesn't come from an ac academic background like yourself that was really useful to try and get that that kind of background on it um as you say 
they're not looking for a, a debate on this. They're not looking for themselves to be corrected by <laughs> by academics. Mm-hmm. Um, they are wanting to use this as a ploy to scare people and win elections, which is what they've done. We're not, you know, political insiders. We're not helping people run for office. My thought would be that with this type of claim, you'd almost have to go, right, yeah, we agree. We should not be teaching critical race theory in primary school or secondary school. We're, we we completely agree with you. Now, it happens to be they're not anyway, but I almost wonder whether or not it would take away some of their power if the Democrats decided to um, sort of camp- almost campaign on that as well and almost make it a sort of non-issue if they tried to say, if it was like, right, yeah, you know, critical race theory, that, that should be something that is taught in um, universities, but not in um, not in primary schools or secondaries, you know. But you know, I'm sure they would come up. I'm sure the Republicans would find a way going right. We agree on that. Let's ban it altogether, and it shouldn't even be in universities. So, who knows? Yeah, um, I I don't think concession is the best way to go about this one. Like, I agree with you that like we need to we need to find some way around this. But concession, I think, and saying like, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't have CRT in elementary schools. I think would aid Republicans in their kind of critiques that parents should be deciding what the curricula is and spoiler alert parents are not educated like professional Mm -hmm. educators they they shouldn't be deciding what is taught in schools because they don't know what either current like educational trends are or current um political debates that that should be worked into curricula are that parents are not the end-all be-all of of knowing what to know otherwise we're going to stagnate to what was taught under reagan uh, well i guess no parents would be older than that now but in the 90s and early 2000s like what why do they get to decide what we're learning you it's the same kind of idea of having an oil tycoon as the head of climate change like what are you talking about we should have a scientist there and we should have a doctor as the head of um, infectious disease. And like, why wouldn't you have an educated professional deciding what, like a professional of education is what I mean specifically, deciding what education standards are. Like Betsy DeVos being the head of education under Trump. What the fuck is that? That's insane. You can't just have random people deciding what everybody knows. And this this kind of gets into what I was talking about with ideological state apparatuses. Education, from a Marxist historian's perspective, education is the most important thing in society because education is how you learn how to be a citizen in that society. It's where it's your first port of call for learning the laws and the structure of the government learning the expectations of you as a citizen. That's why we have four-year-olds saying the Pledge of Allegiance, because education is the first place you learn how to conduct yourself in a society. And it is the most important thing for us to get a handle on. And with Republicans attacking education constantly and saying critical race theory doesn't belong in primary and secondary education, they are absolutely brilliantly imploding any chance Democrats have of establishing any sort of more representative or progressive or um, critical thinking skills in in young people. 
who will be our future leaders. This is why I feel so so passionately about this. And thank you for, for letting me do a deep dive into critical race theory there because education is so fucking important and Republicans attacking it is just probably the most dire situation we have yeah. in modern politics, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that we absolutely can't have Republicans um, and uh, teachers sort of deciding what, what can be taught in school. I guess my worry is that they kind of already are. Um, mm -hmm. Um, it does make you wonder whether or not Democrats are going to have to um, sort of can they actually change change subject on this or is this the type of thing which is just going to borrow into people on not just on the right but people in the centre as well who go right I you know I've heard about critical race theory you know I don't know what this is but it, it terrifies me it I guess it's it's one of those things where I don't know to what degree do you um, do you trust the American people to listen to the listen to the correct people on this and listen to um, what's correct rather than what's been spoken the loudest? And there's certainly sort of evidence in the past that people who will speak louder and tap tap into fears will um, make more of an impact than people who. Um, talk softly but are technically correct so um, yeah I, I don't think anyone I'm not aware of anyone having a, a particularly sort of well-rounded response that would move the subject on beyond what you said Vaughn which is you know this is incorrect and here's why and here's the people you should be listening to but it would appear that message is maybe um, more difficult to uh, to get out there in the masses I think the people in the center who have heard of it, as you say, who have heard of it, but aren't quite sure what it is and are a little bit afraid of it. I think they might listen to, this is what critical race theory actually is. It is not in schools. This is a professional kind of analysis of critical race theory and how we use it. I think they might be willing to listen to that, like something that I like what I just said. If you know someone who doesn't know what critical race theory is, but you think that they might listen to what I just said, please share this with them. Um, but I don't think Republicans who are hell-bent against critical race theory will listen to something like that. So I think there's there's some audience for an explanation of it and willing to hear out kind of the academic and scholarly opinion on it. Um, not even opinion, just stating what it is. But yeah, I, yeah, I think, I think the further right you go along the, the spectrum, people are less likely to listen and respond to what the actual theory is. I think part of it as well is that, and this shouldn't be ignored, is that the media these days seems more interested in stoking up conflict rather than reporting yeah. fact and i think in the past we were maybe better served by media in general with regards to reporting of stories and reporting of what fact is and what's actually happening and what's true even if um even if sometimes um the way it was framed wasn't always the best i, I think we're we're very much in a you only have to look at it with with 
what happened with Trump, where Trump would say something and rather than it being called out as a lie, he would just say, you know, Trump says this and the Democrats disagree rather than Trump tells a lie and, you know, um, whoever tries to tell the truth. So I think we're in a very difficult spot with um, with Republicans listening to any kind of reason on this. I, I do wonder whether or not there needs to be a, a greater national communication around something like critical race theory, which would maybe move the conversation to a more national level rather than on a um, um, sort of local level, because it, it did feel like the Republicans in Virginia were able to tap into sort of talking, talking about local school level conversations, even if it was yeah. nonsense. And um, I, I do wonder whether or not the it should be tried to be elevated and move, move beyond that. But, you know, we well, are we are going to be talking about QAnon later. So, you know, mm. fuck knows if we can actually trust any any kind of um, wider message to get out to the American people. Just Sorry. the last thing that I would say on this, if I can jump in here. Yeah, go for it. On that note, there has been national conversation around CRT, but not not constructive enough um, in terms of the 1619 project and Trump's response of the 1776 commission um, and the uh, lesser talked about or lesser discussed alternative of the 1620 project, which is something that we talked about on our patriotism episode, all three of those um, with Ben Railton. Mm -hmm. I think we could probably discuss 1619 and 1776 again uh, in further detail with an, a history educator, um, possibly Jeff. I know that excites you, Simon. <laughs> but I think that we could, I think we, we could do a better job with actually explaining what's happening on a national scale with this. Because there, there have been some national conversations about critical race theory that just have not been good enough. Um, and it, as you say, it does deserve more national attention rather than allowing it to be local disputes in red states where Democrats and academics are not necessarily as present as they could be to explain what it is. Because at the moment, it's these local kind of mob mentality of, well, I'm mad and you should be mad. And it's it's almost shifting away from the actual issue that is happening because it's such heightened anger and emotion around these personal stories of my high school senior had a nightmare over beloved um so i agree with you and i think that we could help do that by having another episode to actually get into these claims in education across the country yes uh, I think there's a lot more we could dive into with that. Um, do we want to say anything else, or should we move on to the the Biden Bidenification of, of America? I think we can move on. Okay. I think I've said my piece. You have, and you said it very well, Bon. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you. Right, Joe Biden, the greatest American president who is currently president. Um, he is. Uh, I guess celebrating in some sense in the fact that he looks like he has got uh, one, maybe two bills to go through, and he truly is the new FDR. Um, the, the kind of the, the kind of background for Joe Biden, I guess, at the moment is that he's been having some faltering polling numbers, and 
there's been various polls that have come out that have said that America's heading in the wrong direction, or at least according to a, a certain number of people who were polled on it. Um, it is interesting that sort of unemployment numbers have gone down and, you know, vaccination numbers have gone up and, you know, there are kind of pointers towards uh, maybe shockingly enough, the Democrats not maybe getting their message across well enough, which is uh, something I can't believe myself. Um, the um, specifics of, I guess, what we're going to talk about today is uh, more around the infrastructure bill and the build uh, better back bill. And then we'll also talk about some democratic infighting around all of that. Um, do either of you guys want to kind of go first just on the kind of background of the two bills and kind of where we are right now? And then we can kind of go into some of the the, the debates around the, the, the center left versus the hard left and whatever else. Yeah, so um, the, the Democrats, as you say, have just passed a one trillion bill to rebuild the nation's uh, aging infrastructure. And it is, you know, there's a tremendous um, achievement. Uh, they passed it in the House. And um, they also passed um, a, a, a bill that, that aids this um, going forward as, as well. Um, and and it, it helps to fulfill, as, uh, as you said, you know, the, the Biden administration's uh, build bad, better plans it's part of the the three sweeping you know um pieces of legislation that he he wanted to to push through the american uh, rescue plan the infrastructure bill and then the families plan uh, as well and uh, i would say that, that my uh, particular angle on this has to be about um the the two senators that have blocked the bill because I think that within history, both of these characters are going to be talked about a lot. Manchin, obviously, you know, he, he's considered to be the, you know, the, the path-breaking vote in the, in, in the Senate, especially because you only have a, a 50-50 uh, Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manchin, obviously, he comes from West Virginia. He comes from a state that Donald Trump won by uh, 68% to 29%. So, you know... The political realities of just Manchin being a senator do sway him to the side of being that kind of bipartisan, you know, senator in in many ways. What's what's quite interesting about uh, about him is that he doesn't really come across for Republicans. You know, they, Republicans like Joe Manchin, but you know, during the Trump administration, Joe Joe Manchin did not vote to gut the. The Obamacare Care Act. He did not vote to uh, lower taxes on on um, those with high incomes and on 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 corporations. So yeah, he is in many ways a sort of a, a centrist Democrat, uh, but he is a centrist Democrat of the the Clinton ilk. You know, the sort of eighties, nineties, uh, moves to the center, triangulate um, kind of Democrat. He obviously comes to West Virginia, which is very culturally conservative as well. He votes against abortion. Um, he, he votes uh, against gun rights uh, legislation. He, he, he has stated that he supports some specific kinds of um, economic aid for this, the, the state, but that, that doesn't really come through that much. Um, since the 1990s, he's been, he's been actually campaigning on on tax cuts, he's, he's talked about 
trying to end an entitlement uh, society. And, and he has really been at, the, at the, the, the center of this. He, he really came into politics uh, through family connections. One of his members of his family was uh, part of the state legislature. And um, yeah, and he, his first sort of um, entrance into politics was actually watching a primary between uh, JFK and, and, and Humphrey. And um, that was uh, really important for him because as an Irish Catholic, this was the first time an Irish Catholic really came into the state, uh, won the state, and um, and as an Irish Catholic and Italian, it was it was a real uh, moment for him to come into his own and uh, join the Democratic Party, but also to you know for, for Irish Catholics like himself to to gain that confidence to be on the national stage, and you know he 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 obviously becomes a politician, he eventually becomes the governor. But one of his most important uh, formative um, people who, who, who taught him uh, a lot about politics was this guy called uh, Bird, um, Robert Bird, who was actually, when he was younger, he was actually a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But Bird's influence on Manchin was all about um, bipartisanship, you know, he, he taught, he said that the Senate should be a slower, more, you know, more deliberative body than the House. It was there to protect minorities of, you know, various kinds, um, you know, rich minorities and then, you know, minorities like African-Americans. And, um, and, and I think Manchin really inculcated that. So um, when Manchin became a senator, he became this force against a lot of progressive change. Actually, Barack Obama, uh, during the Obama administration, didn't at all uh, look to Manchin for, he didn't really call Manchin. Uh, Biden's called Manchin a lot more in a month than Obama called them throughout the Obama presidency, especially in the first two years when um, the, 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 the strengths in the House and the Senate for the Democrats was a lot stronger than they, they are right now. But then, obviously, very, very recently, Joe Manchin has become an incredibly um, important senator for the build, build Back Better, uh, Build Back Better ambitions. And Manchin has tried to block the the, the three trillion infrastructure plan that was um, conceived. Um, you know, he see, he's seen it as an entitlement plan. Um, and, and that's why he's, he's really tried to block. And many people know why, you know, the mansion, there's all these things about his biography, like I've stated, his relationship with Robert Baird, the fact that he comes from a really culturally conservative uh, state, the fact that right now the state is a 68%, you know, Trump state. There's many things that sort of um, structure the way Manchin sees the world personally, but also structure his own, the context that he comes out of. And that's why he's really been pushing against a lot of the the legislation that uh, Biden has uh, has has really uh, pushed pushed forwards. But the other person is someone that is, I think, a little bit more mysterious. Uh, Christian Cinema. She's, I mean, she has the unfortunate uh, thing of be, of being named Christian Cinema for some some strange reason, but also. Um, 
she is considered by many people to be stylistically and personally quite a, a maverick. You know, she dress, dresses in really interesting, mm-hmm. in interesting ways. You know, she she looks like a, you know, like someone, um, you know, like out of the Hunger Games or something. You know, mm-hmm. um, in the way she she acts, the way she dresses, but actually very very differently from Joe Manchin. Christian cinema uh, was a progressive activist. Like um, she came out of Arizona. Um, she 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 was part of a quite poor family. Uh, she she so she mentions uh, quite frequently she she was homeless um, in in her formative so for part of her formative years and she developed actually into a progressive activist uh, first starting as a social worker and she runs for the state legislature and loses uh, initially uh, and then she wor- obviously she worked on Ralph Nader's campaign and you know Ralph Nader has famously been called a spoiler. Uh, candidates uh, because of what he did um, in 2000 and you know she she goes on and loses in 2002 and and I think um, Christian cinema's main actual legislative concerns the reason that she became an activist um, a lot of that had to do with uh, she, her pro-immigration stance she was really really pro-immigration uh, Im- um, she, she, she also wrote a letter um, to the Arizona uh, Repu- uh, the Phoenix uh, Republic and um, in the letter she castigated um, capitalism you know she talked about America as a consumerist society where the almighty dollar was um, the, the ruler and um, and for many people at that point you know she she seemed like you know a progressive, very, very progressive on, on immigration, progressive on entitlements. Um, but for some strange reason, uh, when she runs in 2004 and actually wins the state legislature, she starts to move to become much more bipartisan. Um, there's a piece of, um, there was like a, a gay uh, rights bill that was running through um, at, the, at the time. And she um went uh she she was obviously she's pro gay rights um she was well connected in the lgbt uh, community at that point but um what she did is she framed the the issue as really an issue a constitutional issue for all people instead of the lgbt community and members of the lgbt community were actually quite upset at her for for, for doing that many of them um, saw it um, as a bit of a betrayal. And but then in 2011, she co-sponsored an Arizona Republican bill um, that uh, was actually clamped down on, on, on immigration rights and um, the um, Mexican and uh, Latin American community, uh, progressive elements of that community were, were, were very upset with her. And she seemed to start to develop this sort of you know um bipartisan language she started to say things like her hero was john mccain who was the you know the maverick of the the senate there's that famous um that famous vote where john mccain put his thumbs down um for when he was trying to vote against a piece of uh, trump's um 
legislation and and she she seemed to echo that uh as well um quite recently uh in the senate when she be when she became a senator so christian cinema goes from very different from mansion she goes from someone who is a progressive activist to someone who feels that she needs to be more moderate to move up in the party and um, be successful in the party, obviously in the early 2000s and uh, before 2010, all the office holders in Arizona were Republicans. And so there was a, a logic to that. But right now, um, her opposition to the Build Back Better legislation, to the, the Family Cares Bill, uh, to the Jobs Plan, her opposition is actually out of step with um, with this South Arizona and um, Arizona in general, which is moving towards becoming a more democratic state. Obviously, Joe Biden won Arizona uh, in the last uh, election. And I think that kind of feeds into where both of them are right now on the bill because, you know, like for me, I'm, I know who Joe Manchin is, right? I know um, why he's blocking some of the uh, prescri pres uh, prescription drug pricing, um, the Medicare benefits, um, and, uh, and obviously the tax hikes. But quite recently, the Biden administration is, it has been uh, getting information from Christian Sinema that she isn't necessarily against the structure of these bills. Um, and um, she, although she's played a prominent role in watering down uh, drug pricing, Medicare benefits, uh, and played a prominent role against the, the, the tax and spend agenda uh, of uh, Joe Biden, it does seem that she might be doing a lot of these things as, as a, almost like a form of theater while Joe Manchin is critically and identifiably a centrist Democrat. Um, I know many people haven't necessarily said this, but I, I from, from, getting my, um, from looking at uh, Christian Sinema within the, the infrastructure debates and the, the job uh, um, plan debates, I actually think that she might be a little bit of a Manchurian candidate, actually. I, I, I'm not really sure what her politics are. This, the, the theater of you know, dressing in funny ways, um, completely changing your politics. Um, you know, like, obviously she's taught at, um, at state universities before and, and her writings out there in the public. So she clearly has a perspective on, on you know, democratic politics that is well thought out. But, but it's still, she, she remains a mysterious figure. She remains a mysterious figure, actually, to many of the, um, the, the senators and fellow Democrats on the Hill, not just to journalists and you know, people who talk about these things on podcasts and stuff. But, but yeah, Joe Manchin, is, he's, he's much, he, I think he's much more understandable in a way uh, and yeah, I think obviously Mansion will continue to be that um, bulwark against um, many progressive pieces of legislation. 
funny enough, Matt Manchin's actual beliefs on a lot of the like pieces of legislation aren't so concrete. You know, what he likes to do is he likes to make sure that that the Democrats are seen to be acting in a bipartisan way and trying to make bills in bipartisan. Um, and, and that's quite important for him. But that comes from, you know, his relationship with Robert Byrd and, and um, you know, his and his seat in the in the Senate. But, yeah, Christian cinema became, yeah, maintains a, a level of, I think, elusiveness. Um, and, and, and those are the two reasons why the 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 infrastructure bill has been whittled down to uh, one, one, one trillion by now. Thank you for that, Toby. That was uh, really, really insightful. Um, Toby, do do you think um, do you think this is going to be kind of a continued story for um, Biden in the rest of his term, him, him clashing against these two figures, or do you think once we move past this particular set of legislature le- legislative um, agenda, these two bills, do you think? we're perhaps going to see maybe kind of more coming together from them? Well, I, I, I feel like they, because it's a 50-50 split in the Senate, and, you know, like if, if a senator is missing uh, or, you know, like if they die or something like that, it's, it's, it's so critical. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and, you know, obviously there are a number of bills that you can pass uh, with, just with 51. I think they're going to continue to be to be a thorn in his side, but obviously, these are the the titular pieces of um, legislation for the Biden administration. So I I can imagine he'll be calling Mansion less. He'll be thinking about what Christian cinema is going to be dressed like on a particular day, um, less than than he is now. But but neither of these two people want to end the. Um, filibuster so you know obviously the, the, the filibuster um uh, the requirements um neither of them want want to end it obviously because it it gives them more power in in the senate than than they would have if you could um you know nuke the the, the filibuster and i i think that that so structurally they remain uh, people that the democrats are going to have to sculpt legislation in order mm-hmm. to um just just to count out to that to them and, and they have been because um you know on on, on all three pieces of, of legislation that they've have looked the past they've they've had to take particular parts out of those pieces of legislation in order to um have uh, mansion and uh, cinemas um say say so yeah do you think do you think if we're projecting ahead and um, the midterms don't go well for the Democrats, do you think Biden might be thinking, right, I've really kind of got to get anything through in my first term? Because if I, you know, if I were to get a second term, I'm probably not going to have as uh, a much leeway around, um, you know, either the first half of his of his uh, term or, or the um the second term that might come, it might be a smaller margin. Do you think he's really focusing on, right, I've got, at least I've got something, even if it's, you know, maybe a bit watered down, I'm going to make sure I try and force through whatever, you know, whatever I can do in this immediate future and just um, have try and get that for my legacy, at least. 
uh, well, I think that's a that's a sort of bigger, and I think it's much more about um, like our, our subjective opinions. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I I think probably the the Democrats might lose control of one of the the houses mm-hmm. um, in the midterms, but I think in two thousand and and 24 that they will win um the presidency and mm-hmm. that will carry um you know one of those legislatures back to the to the democrats so i, I think interesting th- there might be a opportunity to restart the clock in 2024 interesting. but i'm not sure they there will be in 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 you know next year so i yeah. I, I really do think that these pieces of legislation as they are they they I think they're, they're essentially important. And obviously it's important because the Democratic Party is, is you know, the, 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 the people who are creating the economic plans around Biden right now see, you know, themselves much more as links to Lyndon Johnson and the New Deal than to, you know, the Clinton administration of the, of the 1990s, which obviously uh, Manchin and Cinema are much more um, related to in terms of their you know political relationships and political I- ideology. So I would say that right now it's it's really really important to to pass these pieces of legislation because it's a 50-50 split in the Senate. Um, there could be a possibility of the Republicans taking the Senate uh, in the midterms, and 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 if that happens, then it's just going to be you know, McConnell uh, yeah. obstructing things and uh, Manchin's probably not going to help, help uh, out and uh, when, when that happens. Um, but probably also, um, I guess, what, one difference between Manchin and cinema, which, which is unre- a little bit unrelated to the infrastructure bill and, and, and other pieces of legislation is that, you know, Man- Manchin didn't vote with, with Trump that much um, while, while cinema did. You know, she she was. I think she was one of the one or two most um, co- cooperative with Trump's um, agenda during uh, his presidency um, in in the in the Senate. So, um, you know, the 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 possibility that these two might be a problem for the Democrats if the the Senate uh, or the House. Or, or both of them are taken by by the Republicans. Um, I think it's much more with with cinema than it than than it is with Manchin. But obviously that's that's a that's a problem. And and I do think, but I know your your opinion on this is different. I, I do think that the Democrats will win in twenty twenty four. But the, in terms of the midterms, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it they all people always vote against the incumbent party at, at midterms, especially an incumbent party that does a lot, like Biden's mm-hmm. administration is trying, or at least. You know, are trying to do, I haven't done that much, but trying to do, and you know, re- Republicans uh, higher, higher. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not sort of more educated anymore, but they they do have a higher prevalence of voting in less, you know, uh, sort of operationally significant uh, elections. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I do think it, it will turn against uh, Biden. So so the the times that we we've had over the last few months have been critically important for, for, for these uh, pieces of legislation. Yeah, I mean, I guess historically, if you look over the last 20, 30 years or so, I should, probably should be on the side of 
Democrats winning the presidential election because more often than not in our our lifetime that has been the case. Um, but I'm uh, not convinced of uh, <laughs> of who will be uh, running in 2024, um, and if Biden will still be on the ticket. Um, Vaughn, have you got any thoughts either on the bills themselves um, or on the Democratic shit show or anything like that? Um, well, my first thought is thank you for that, Toby, because I didn't know that much about Kristen Cinema and her past, and that has given me a lot to think about. Yeah, she reminds she made me think of what Vaughn would be like if she entered politics. Right you know? <laughs> as a progressive stalwart, and then you know she'll think, yeah. well, more I like getting good grades, and I and also <laughs> like winning things. Uh, what, what should I do? Yeah. Vaughn's kind of went the other way because she she was politically aligned to the right and then over time has moved further and further to the left so almost like we don't talk about that simon okay okay i take that i think the one thing is that cinema was older when she she did this thing so that's true Mm, and just 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 to clarify vaughn is moving further and further to the right i apologize yes thank you um actually i think that is an interesting thing to talk about because people very frequently will say the older you get the further right you go Mm um but being a white child growing up in suburban Philadelphia. Um, actually, my county is quite democratic, but with the influences and in education that I had, I was registered Republican as an 18 year old. Um, I have since changed that. And over the years, I kept my registration Republican because of Pennsylvania's voting caucus. Um, that you can only vote in the primary of your registered party in Pennsylvania. So I used it like I, as an 18 year old, I registered Republican, not understanding politics in any way, but knowing the most about Republicans. And then as I became more educated, my, my views have changed and I started using that as a strategic vote and I changed it to democratic for a strategic vote for Bernie. So I think that is an interesting thing that that I should acknowledge that, yes, I was earlier in my life further right, and I have gone much further left um, <laughs> as, as I've gotten older and became more educated because of those those damn liberal universities. Um, right, anyway, what I would say about this is that, one, Kristen Cinema is the worst bisexual representation I've ever seen. I hate that for a lot of reasons. <laughs> that she is the first openly bisexual congressperson we've ever had. Boo on that. Um, only because, like, you don't represent me. Don't don't use that as a statement that you... Because I've heard her say multiple times and have seen many articles about how she's bisexual and that's groundbreaking. And then she's voting on all of this shit. And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. None of that, please. Don't tie us into that. It's like the old joke about does Margaret Thatcher have girl power? You know. It's Ooh, like... Yes. Well, she's the ultimate girl boss, right? She's <laughs> she's who you model your uh, your outfits on. Mm, absolutely. Yes, the Iron Lady. Anyway, um, in terms of the bills and the Build Back Better Act, um, the only things that I would highlight are just kind of key things in it. I'm really happy that there has been that the infrastructure bill has passed and that it will be bringing broadband to uh, more communities around the country. That is an essential thing, um, not only for 
politics, but also for education. Um, if a student doesn't have access to broadband, they can't really do the homework anymore in modern education because we use internet so frequently in either research or even attending classes or doing your homework and uploading it online. Um, so that is a crucial thing that should be available to everybody in the country. And I'm happy that this is at least a step towards that. Um, roads and rails, absolutely. More power to them. Definitely send money there. The infrastructure bill is projected to create half a million jobs. That's fantastic. Uh, and there is money set aside for preparation for weather events due to climate change and also money for electrical grids and electric car charging ports around the country uh, and towards clean energy. What was stripped out of it, um, among other things, are the clean en energy standard that would have set an 80% renewable um, standard for the country, mm. essentially by 2030, that's been stripped away. And that's definitely a setback. I think overall, as, as Toby said, like the infrastructure bill is a great achievement for sure, but it is troublesome what has been stripped out of it. And it doesn't bode incredibly well for the Build Back Better bill um, or act rather, which would provide university preschool and reduce childcare costs um, among many other things, provide half a trillion dollars for tackling climate change Mansion and Cinema are attacking the family leave and free community college. And I think that after the infrastructure bill, if the Democrats have to strip away paid family leave and any student aid in this bill, um, I think that bodes very horribly for the Democrats in the midterms because those are two crucial kind of promises that Biden made on the campaign trail. And if he can't get those passed, that's that's gonna be an issue in my opinion. Yes, <clears throat> um, my, my own perspective is kind of similar to, to both you guys. Um, definitely an achievement from uh, Biden administration considering the, the difficulties of the, the votes they have to deal with. I think there's general um, disappointment from those of us who care whether or not the world's going to be completely underwater in 10 years time or not um boiling or not... water sorry boiling water boiling water yes well i think new orleans might actually be completely gone by 2040 so um i don't know how mm. that's going to impact the senate um yeah God, what a grim sentence that is how is that going to impact the senate not yeah. not like the people <laughs> live there. No, the Senate's no. more important. Yeah, that's far they're more gonna important. Have, they're going to have their two senators or what's going to happen? Exactly. Come on, get with the program. <laughs> yeah, it's um, very, very disheartening. Uh, we've lost some I, of those things. I do like that the infrastructure bill is partially being funded by taxes on cryptocurrency. I think that kind of slid through wow. without much kind of media attention, but that's funny to me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I didn't hear that. Yeah. No, those I, fucking yeah. assholes thought that they couldn't, you know, get taxed, and now, now it's happening. It's great. It's great. I saw the um, is it the, is it the mayor of New York who's going to take up, uh, his uh, initial payments in Bitcoin, which is, you know, a great sentence too. Really? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. So yeah, 
uh, exciting times for those who want to get paid in Bitcoin and live underwater. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about, um, either this or the elections that we've just had, uh, before we move on to a couple of the uh, funnier stories? Um, uh, just, just to finish um, and say that the that, that cinema is compromising on um, her views on high um, uh, taxes for high income earners and mm-hmm. um, and is, is on board with a sort of stripped down deal on, on prescription drug prices, while uh, Mansion, in terms of the build, build back better, remains uh, against the uh, expansion in hearing aids for, uh, in terms of social spending. Uh, for Medicare and um, is continues as Vaughan says to be against the inclusion of uh, paid family leave and obviously uh, as Vaughan said um, that, that those climate provisions as well. Isn't that weird? Just like a sentence, like I'm opposed to paid family leave. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want an entitlement society. So, so. Goddamn families <laughs> getting too Wait, much. Well, did you see what Bobert said about it, Lauren Bobert? No. No. She said she put out this video on social media that she was like, I didn't need paid family leave when I had my four kids because I gave birth in the front seat of my truck. I have things to do. I'm a busy mother. And people were like, that's not that's not an <laughs> argument. <laughs> like, also, you shouldn't be giving birth it's in like, the front seat of your truck. It's like, like there's this meme where it's like um like a a sort of businessman says to a worker you know you're not getting a time off and the, the worker's an American and he's like okay and then he says it to the German and the Germans go crazy it's like mm-hmm. Americans are so beaten down that they will think about things like that you know like giving birth in the front of a truck is somehow empowering and individualistic yeah. and just won't think of the fact that how horrible you know inhumane it is yeah, yeah, it's a sad, yeah. sad state of affairs. Exactly. I saw something on Twitter, which I in no way fact checked, but because on the internet I'm going to believe it. Um, that said something along the lines of like American workers these days have or take less holidays than like 18th century factory workers, um, which I'm just going to choose to believe. Um, mm. Oh, I did read into that actually, and there there is one historian who is who is purporting that kind of theory that um american workers work more than it's relative there's a whole relative structure mm-hmm. a- 18th century the factory workers. there's something like that i'm not not well, sure that, 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 that's interesting though because you know it's, it's sort of like pre-industrialization moving into industrialization there, there, yeah there's, there's a possibility that that, that is that might yeah. be true um shockingly enough i might not have got the exact numbers on that correctly but i, I thought it just as an indication of America, so just accepting its places, having to work hard and not get anything is um, I, quite telling. I think there was a comparison to 19th, 19th century, so 1800s factories, mm. but also feudal um, European feudal serfs. Oh, and like Russian that serfs. Americans mm. work more than feudal serfs do. Maybe that was it. Yes. Um, but they, but get, to, they get to make money factory. and live in houses. <laughs> What's what's wrong? What's wrong with that? Feudal uh, serfs also lived in houses. <laughs> did they? Okay, you win. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned to our new sister podcast where Vaughn talks us through feudal serfs. Um, 
Um, well, is it really different from today, honestly? Oh, that's, mm, galaxy. That's brain. the whole gist of it. Okay. Um, shall we move on to something far more sensible, Please. which is JFK? <laughs> um, Toby, you were in Dallas looking for the return of JFK Jr. <laughs> How was it on the streets there, and was there great disappointment when JFK Jr. didn't return from the dead? Well, the thing about me is that <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a QAnon guy. I don't, I don't, I'm not really into this. I'm not really into resurrection stories of, uh, <laughs> of any kind, actually. But when I heard that JFK Jr. was still alive, <laughs> I, I I was completely taken in by this. I, I made my way to Dallas um, immediately. <laughs> you know, I was planning to go there for the Matthew McConaughey campaign, but <laughs> I, I went early. And uh, I'm, you know, and yeah, I I'm completely uh, shocked by by the by this. Um... So yeah, so like, um, it's the whole QAnon idea that uh, Trump is uh, still the president, or he's yep. going to take out, you know, he and. Actually, Biden is a fake president, and everyone knows this. And Trump is going to take uh, back over. And uh, some of the members uh, at the QAnon march wore Trump JFK Jr. Uh, 2024 shirts because the whole idea is that um, Trump is going to run with JFK Jr. to make um, America great again. Uh, again, and yeah. Um, and it's also strange that they they showed up at a rally uh, in in Dallas, um, you know, where JFK himself uh, was 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 murdered. Yeah, it's a, it's it's another it's another page in the QAnon um, sort of conspiracy conspiracy theory, and actually a, a page uh, that's rare that that I'm actually quite interested in. Um, yeah, and I I really want to know what your opinions are on this. So. I take it people have, hopefully if they're listening to this podcast, they have seen the story. Otherwise, uh, please Google it and um, please, you know, entertain yourself for 10 minutes. There is at least one video going around where some QAnon supporters basically identify this random white man who I think is like four inches shorter than JFK Jr. was. And they're just like, wait, are you JFK Jr.? And he's like, you know, who knows, maybe, or kind of, and he's kind of like non-committal, but he's quite enjoying the attention and people just sort of gather around him and think he's JFK Jr. Yeah, just be- before because JFK Jr. was supposed to come there at Daily Plaza and make mm-hmm. that announcement there. That is what they believe. Yes, uh, and that then people were like, because what happens with QAnon is they'll say something and then it won't happen. But then what they'll do is go, oh no, 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 actually, what's happening is this, and they just sort of keep the ball rolling. And there was what one my favorite line from this was once um, he didn't sort of turn up at the plaza and they were like, oh, he's got to turn up at the Rolling Stone gig. They were like, Rolling Stone, you know, like rolling the stone away, like when Jesus was resurrected and they sort of rolled the stone away from like like the, the cave he was in and to see if the body had gone. So it all turned very biblical. Um, Vaughn? Um, oh, yeah. And then again, like another of this, uh, just because I assume that everyone knows this, that JFK Jr. faked that plane crash. That's another yes. thing. Faked the plane crash. He, he did in Daily Plaza. He was there in Daily Plaza because they said a guy was him. 
yeah, this is the, the conspiracy. Yes, he faked his death and then decided to go back to where his father had been assassinated to do a reveal 20-something years later. Um, Vaughn, you're currently uh, running to be elected a new QAnon shaman. How is that process mm-hmm. going? And are you disappointed that JFK Jr. didn't turn up? So, well, thank you for asking. It is going exceptionally well because I am the one who convinced them that after JFK Jr. didn't show up and like I was facing some kind of humiliation on that front, I convinced them that possibly Keith Richards is actually JFK, that JFK never died. Oh. He that that was faked. His assassination and wait, wait. Let me let me take a look at this Keith Richards person. <laughs> oh, this is a genuine theory that they they invented after JFK. This Jr. guy did. doesn't look like John John. <laughs> fucking ugh. Like, also... heroin face. Uh, no, no, that's not that's not him. That's not. Yeah. How is this? How is this JFK? What's wrong with these people? So this is a thing. They they genuinely thought after JFK Jr. didn't show up and then they were like, oh, he's going to show up at the Rolling Stones concert. Then people were like, what if Keith Richards is actually JFK? And I want well, to make No, no, I get JFK, it. I get it. JFK, JFK Jr. Yes. He had the plane crash and his face was all fucked up. And now he looks like Keith Richards. No, no. Keith Richards is JFK. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. No, yeah. No, what? You mean yeah, not that is the, the theory? Wait, 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 wait! That, no, 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 no. Yeah, not the, that is not the, theory. Not the young one, the the one who's killed by uh, Lee Harvey apparently in the sixties. Yes, in in nineteen sixty-two. Two, I think. Three. Oh no. Yeah. Yes, I that is I'm the theory. My mind. JFK <laughs> would be a hundred and four years old today, and well, people are you... like, "That's Keith Richards." Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, Amazing. "Have you looked at the Rolling Stones?" Amazing. I love it. I love this theory. I think that's that's just brilliant thinking on your feet, keeping the ball rolling. Like, obviously, Keith Richards is JFK. Um, what? Yeah, that's what? where we're at. That's where we're at. We're all like balanced journalism. We need balanced journalism in the States and we need to present both sides of the argument. These fuckers think that JFK is 104 years old as the lead singer of the Rolling Fucking Stones and you want me to like be fair to them? You want me to be like, yeah, these people get to decide what education is. Fuck you. That's ridiculous. I'm so over this Q bullshit and Republicans backing it and being okay with it. Get fucking over it. Like, we're a year on. Biden was announced the winner a year ago today. While Rudy Giuliani was at Four Seasons Total Landscaping making a fucking prick of himself. We're a year later and these fucking Q people still think that oh Trump's coming back it was supposed to be March 4th but now like well it was supposed to be inauguration day and then the original inauguration day and then it was like August 17th or some fuck and now it's JFK Jr. in Dealey Plaza get wrecked I'm so over this oh my god (laughs) well first of all I'd like to thank Vaughn for opinions I'd also like to thank myself for making sure that Vaughn drank before we started the show Um, I'd and I'd also like yeah, to add sorry. that it is disheartening that we have to have these people around in the world. Um, but can you imagine what's going to happen once Donald Trump eventually dies and the theories we're going to have then? So, um, oh my, fuck that, me, god damn it! I'm so sick of this. Why can't we just? Why can't we move past this? They're still claiming voter fraud, but 
surprisingly not in the Virginia election. Well, that's because like, Republicans won. So, although, did you hear that? Um, buying this shit. There's a nice story. That, uh, wait, wait. Let, let me just before we we drift away away from this. <laughs> the, the person who's who is organizing this uh, is a federal way business owner and QAnon influencer named Michael Prontsman, also known as Negative Forty Eight. Uh, in various online communities, um, owns Federal Way, Clips Demolition. And uh, yes, uh, he posted a f- photo of himself to the uh, Telegram channel holding a trophy inscribed the G. Matria General, God communicates in numbers and Trump does too. And oh uh, he uses his, um, his platform to spread uh, social media uh, content that is uh, anti-Semitic, and um, oh my God. these are the these are sort of the kinds of people uh, who are organizing these things. Yes, today, and, and just this to is be the face of the Republican Party. Just to be clear, we will accept their money and promote their message if. They oh, oh, definitely. The oh, no, fuck no. we will. Yeah. The fuck we will. First come, first. Absolutely second. not. <laughs> Wait, no, Vaughan, this is a voting. Yeah, uh, t- Congress, so. one, do you not do you not respect our? Uh, our and and you're you're the junior podcast. Exactly. From, yes. uh, uh... <laughs> yeah, your your vote is worth was it five eight? <laughs> um, oh. so, um, right. Shall we? Uh, shall we move? On? I was the only thing I was going to say was that um, there was actually some attempted voter fraud in Virginia because the seventeen year old son of the governor twice tried to illegally vote for his father um, and was stopped. So um, I thought that was quite amusing. Um, is there anything else we want to add on QAnon? Toby, do you want any more clarifications on <laughs> the return of JFK or are we, we happy to move on? I don't know. I was, I was, I was kind of happy that the JFK Jr. was coming back, but now, now I'm a little bit depressed about this whole thing. So yeah, yeah, this hasn't been good for me. <laughs> Very sorry. Um, Vaughn, I know you're upset that we just talked about this in general, so apologies. Um, I'm a broken person, Simon. I'm broken. This, yes, but, this, but that, I'm just. Oh. That's a separate point to this conversation, Vaughn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, before we finish up, I, I was going to get Vaughn to just rapid fire th- through some things, but there was technically two other stories I had written down, but I think we're going to drop the Trump prosecutor one only because we're all in agreement that Trump's not going to get prosecuted and he can do whatever the fuck he wants. So the very last thing to touch on quickly before Vaughn does some rapid fire questions is uh, I take it. You guys have seen that uh, big bird is currently in a fight with the Republicans. And that's a brilliant sentence to say. Um, Toby, I don't know if you've seen this one. Have you? No, no. Elaborate on it. So, um, the Twitter account for I think is it Sesame Street or was it was it Sesame Street? Big Bird. It was just Big Bird. Basically Big tweeted Bird out going, "Oh my 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 wing is sore. I've just been vaccinated and all this kind of stuff." And then people like Ted Cruz are like, "They're indoctrinating the five year olds to big pharmacy and all this kind of stuff." <laughs> and uh, so you just got like a lot of right wing crazy people like Ted Cruz um, going, you know the the left-wing media and PBS and Big Bird are uh, making our children get vaccinated and it's terrible. And you can actually, there's actually a clip going around now with um, Big Bird in the 70s from an episode in the 70s of Big Bird standing in line to get vaccinated then as well. So it's not anything new. Um, Vaughn, what are your thoughts on this? 
if you've got any anything after our last conversation. I I fucking love it. What are you, what are you, <laughs> what are you even asking me, Simon? Of course I love it. Big Bird is owning Republicans and not for the first time. Like Sesame Street. <laughs> There, in 1988, um, Sesame Street had a segment of someone called Ronald Grump, who was a grouch akin to Oscar the Grouch. And Ronald Grump lived in Grump Tower, which was built out of trash. And he conned Oscar out of his trash can, out of his home in the trash can. And he, he built he built Grum Tower out of the trash cans of other grouches. So Sesame Street, if we really if we really want to dig into this and talk about whether Big Bird right now is is leaning into leftist agenda and and indoctrinating children to get vaccinated, I think we should look at, at all of Sesame Street's history of Big Bird's other vaccinations and their insistence on having Grump Tower and Ronald the Grump um, in oh. their in their uh, television bro- broadcast to children, I think that's fascinating, and we yeah. should be talking about this. Let's go for it. Let's go all in on this. We could probably have a whole episode on like Big Bird and politics or something like that. That's yeah. This the... this is this has broken my mind. It says that Big <laughs> Bird has been an, an agitator for vaccinations going back since the 1970s. I yeah. know this. And and the furious kind of other grouches and the residents of Sesame Street, they threw Ronald Grump out of his home and out of town wow. in 1988. If that's not a political statement now, it probably wasn't at the time because Donald Trump was no one, but that was a direct hit on Donald Trump in 1988. We should reanalyze that now. We should bring it back. Let's talk about it. Can you believe wow. it's liberal media, Toby? This is just disgusting. This is this is awful. awful. It is. You, you know, they are less at risk uh, statistically of, of, of getting. Do you know this, this Vaughn? Children are less of less risk. Why 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 does Big Bird do this? This is liberal <laughs> liberal media again. You know, just that liberal. Big Bird's RT uh, CRT campaign is coming. You know this. Yep. Uh, Marxist yeah. Big Bird. Marxist Big Bird. Critical bird theory. Just oh. <laughs> <absolutely. laughs> critical bird theory is coming. It's just it's disgusting. Love it. Uh, yeah. Love everything about it. I can't believe we've, moved, we've gone from JFK Jr. to Big Bird. and it's... I absolutely can because the fucking Republican Party is a goddamn joke. Ted Cruz is tweeting about fucking Big Bird and not about the infrastructure bill after a year ago when Texas was freezing to death when people died in texas under his fucking control and there's an infrastructure bill talking about the actual tangible things that we could do to fix those problems so that people do not continue to die under his his constituency and he's fucking tweeting about big bird like no i can absolutely believe that we went from jfk jr with the QAnon dumbasses to the just mainstream (laughs) republican party that are just so fucking sane talking about big bird in comparison oh my fuck me okay um well that's definitely one way to go with it um before we get vaughn to do some more ranting because she's not done enough of that already 
Uh, Toby, is there anything else you'd like to add um, on just politics in general, on today's show, on working with myself and Vaughn? Anything else (laughs) you'd like to add? I feel like it's um, we've done politics on two levels. We've done the the hard stuff with uh, the infrastructure bill, the Mm -hmm. the critical race theory, and then this other stuff, which is also politics, but it's just (laughs) theatre. So like... Mm -hmm. Big Bird does this. Ted Cruz says this is government propaganda. And then a gun control activist replies. And the whole thing started with Big Bird. Like, what is this? Where are we? Like, at least, you know, Cinnamon Mansion, you got people with, you know, doing legislation and, and, you know, with opinions. This stuff is just. I don't know. It looks really bad, but it, but to be honest, it's more fun. So it is, yeah. Keep going. Yep. What an episode, Giuliani, JFK Jr., and Big Bird. Um. Right. Um. I have four things to quickly ask you, Vaughn. So um, oh, take as much okay. take as much time to go over them as you wish. The first one uh, might be the most um, sexually exciting thing ever t- talked about in this podcast, which says a lot, and that is Mitt Romney as Ted Lasso. Um. Mm-hmm. What what were your thoughts on that when you saw it? I remember I, I tweeted. Was it myself who broke the news to you when I tweeted into the group chat, or had you seen it previous to that? You you did bring that to my attention. <laughs> um, you did indeed, and I believe it was Kristen Cinema who was dressed up as the yes. Hannah Waddington character that Mitt Romney was was interacting with while in character. Yep. Um, what are my thoughts on that? Um, to quote Bill Hader, scared and horny, I guess. I, I, um, I, I think it leans a lot more into just what we, what we were just saying, what Toby just said about how there are some serious things happening in politics. And then there's Republicans dressing up and playing theater and Mitt Romney, who is bare minimum, bare minimum Mitt, like only ever does the bare minimum. That's why we love him, Stana King, but absolute bare minimum. And he's like, I'm going to be Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso is like a positive figure of mental health awareness and positivity and growth and all of these things. And and Ted Lasso um, doesn't get bogged down by the, kind of the negativity around him. He always has a, a positive view. And that's going to be my thing here. But, like, do do even less. I, like, I dare bit Mitt Romney to do any less than he already does. What a bullshit fucking stance. And I get it. It was Halloween and he was dressing up and it was a costume. But, like, when you look at that as who did it, you do fucking nothing. You're not, you're not Ted Lasso. You're not this positive kind of figure helping people through problems. You do nothing with the Republicans absolutely nothing except be like well i don't think we should be doing that or like like mm, that's morally questionable and then you still fucking vote for it oh fuck me i was really mad i love ted lasso and i mean obviously love Mitt romney also but the two should not mix it made me mad i like and how we've moved on to you doing impressions that's um that's a whole <laughs> Wait, new wasn't this just for halloween yes yeah, but I guess I don't you know, know because they had all these more important than politics now. So, 
It is. Yeah, he did all of these skits with Kristen Cinema, whom we've been saying through this whole podcast is just doing theatrical politics. And by having the two of them, a Republican and a Democrat, who are pretty much the same on policy mm-hmm. and their voting record essentially at the moment, they like that is a political statement. It's not just for Halloween at that point. It's saying like we are the two who are gonna be this positive influence. Get fucked. Yep, the medium is the message. Um, right. Uh, next one, hopefully a little bit more positive. Uh, Vaughn, you tweeted at length about V for Vendetta. Do you want to just briefly tell us about why you like that film? Ooh, yes. Okay. Um, I did tweet at length about that on uh, 5th of November on Bonfire Night. Um, I rewatched it and did a live commentary. And I love that film for a lot, a lot, a lot of reasons. I think technically... It is perfect. The cinematography, the lighting, the costuming, the casting, the casting's incredible. Um, All of the acting is just so good in that film. Hugo Weaving does an incredible job of an adaptation of V from the the graphic novels. He is not the V in the graphic novels, but he, for the film that they made, he was perfect. Um, John Hurt is perfect as the chancellor. Uh, Stephen Fry is perfect as Gordon Dietrich and Natalie Portman is perfect as Evie. Anyway. So technically, perfect film. Um, politically, I have so many feelings about it. It has energized me in a lot of ways politically. Um, I did have a conversation about it yesterday, actually, in which uh, someone said that having seen it after the Capitol riots, she feels a lot more uncomfortable with the idea of the taking personal violent vengeance against um, politicians and heads of state and all of these sorts of things. And I think that's a very interesting interpretation that I did not think of while I was watching it. So I need to think more on that. But otherwise, the politics that I talked about on the thread on Friday evening were um, that people should not be afraid of their governments and governments should be afraid of their people, which is a quote from the film. Uh, that I really, really believe in. Um, Spoiler alert, I believe that governments should be afraid of their people. And there's another quote in it um, that says, a revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. And we talk a lot on this podcast about ways to get involved and ways to call out corrupt politicians and protests and all of the sorts of ways of challenging your representatives or the government um, and analyzing the things that they do. But I think it's very important while we are doing all of those things to also live life how you want to. Because if you're spending your whole life fighting for a life that you don't live, you lose. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And that has been a real kind of guiding quote for me personally in my politics and the way I live my life um, to make sure that there is time for appropriate protest when called for and uh, political actions and things of the like, not even just political, but even within your um, workspace or your university or standing up in your union. If you have a representative in any area of your life, local, federal, at work, whatever it may be, um, you have to feel represented. And if you don't, you should stand up against it. 
And while doing that, you should also be living life as you want to and enjoying what you do have or you will get burnt out and not be able to fight that fight anymore. So V for Vendetta means a lot of things to me. Um, and that thread is on my Twitter if you do want to read more about it. Right. Um, and two more things to add uh, very quickly. Okay. On. Uh, one is uh, any Star Wars news or reactions to tell the, the people about? Of course. Book of Boba Fett got a trailer and it looks so good. It looks like um, Star Wars the Star Wars reaction to Ted Lasso, where Boba Fett is a middle-aged positive um, figure for all of these outlaws. Um, and I'm really excited about that. He, it, it looks very good. It looks beautiful. It looks well-acted, uh, perfectly cast. Tamira, uh, Tamira Morrison as... Is that right? We'll go with that. Um, I don't know. But it, it's, it's very well-cast. Um, and I'm really, really excited for it. I'm also excited that uh, the Kenobi series is getting a trailer this coming Friday on the 12th, Ooh. and I marked that on my work calendar <laughs> to make sure <laughs> I watch it before I go teach all day. Um, there's also going to be a book, uh, sorry, um, a deep cut Mandalorian season three trailer Ooh. and um, news about Cassie and Andor's series called Andor, which I'm excited about. And another announcement that's coming on Friday is about Boba. Uh, no, sorry. Um, Bad Batch season two. Well, so that's all very exciting. Lots of Star you, Wars news coming up. I was going to say, aren't you a very spoiled little Star Wars fan? Um, I really am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right, so final thing uh, I was just going to ask you was just an update on your sort of teaching side of things and your PhD side of things. So um, um, there's been a little bit of news from your PhD and obviously you're sort of teaching students now. So A, um, how's things going with your PhD? And then B, how's things going as a teacher? Oh, thanks for asking, Simon. Um, teaching is going really well. I'm loving it a lot. My students are brilliant and fantastic. Um, I've learned a lot from them and it's only been five weeks this year so far. So that's fantastic. It's a lot better than teaching last year because we're in person and we can have a lot deeper kind of conversations, I feel, um, and a lot better conversations. Just because of the, the nature of the course that we have, there are only six people in each class um, and I have several classes, but it, it just, it's going very well is what I would say. Um, and I'm very proud of my students. They're they're little geniuses. Um, my PhD, yeah, I kind of changed my thesis on Friday. I'm 34 months into my program, which is nearly three years. Um, and that's a little bit of a terrifying thing <laughs> that I'm shifting focus of my PhD, but it's I'm not necessarily shifting focus. I'm just narrowing. Mm -hmm. a bit further into the harsher realities that are exposed in Christmas films in the Cold War. And that, again, kind of filters out to a larger conversation of harsh realities that are portrayed in innocuous, innocent, quote unquote, non-political media um, that we can analyze 
in other ways, such as Sesame Street having political messages within it. Um, are they inherently political? What do they mean? How are they disseminated? All of that sort of stuff is the kind of backbone of my dissertation. Um, and I am looking further at that into the Cold War instead of a more generalized Hollywood reflecting and informing culture as it was before. Um, and I am on track, I'm gonna regret saying this on a recording, but I am on track to be finished writing by this time next year. Well, isn't and that's that exciting? really exciting. Yeah. Well, I thought we, yeah, I thought we could run this out with some nice um, Ted Lasso style niceness and enthusiasm. Um, So thank you you for that one. Right. Um, Do you guys have anything else to add to today's show or shall we uh, call it a day there? No. I've spoken so much and I've also had vodka and tea and Maria. (laughs) Yeah, it's because you went on the last podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I should, yeah, I'm balancing out here, I guess. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that, guys. Maybe we should hold Vaughn back from episodes here and there so we can wind her up for, you know, <laughs> episodes, you know? That's... I'm sorry for yelling. I yelled a lot on this one. That's okay. That's that's good. It's mm. nice to have some contrast, you know. Toby and I bring sober reflection and, you know, you, <laughs> you know. Uh... I feel a little drunk after the JFK Jr. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was um, this episode kind of got away from us, but that was that was part of the fun, I think. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we will have another another episode for you guys in the near future. Um, hopefully, in a couple of weeks, we will be doing. Should we say what we're we're planning on doing? We kind of tweeted out oh, yeah. that we're aiming to do an episode on Vince McMahon and wrestling and politics, and uh, kind of history around that. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting uh, chat. Um, because again, it's as someone who grew up in the uk you know that that's you know one of those things that you you watch as a kid and you go wow we don't have that in the uk quite as much that's it was a huge part of my my life actually when i was like yeah when i was like 12 yeah 10 11 yeah it was weird like we used to talk about the playground like it was sports like yeah exactly i i I distinctly remember being in primary school and being like are we are you going to stay up tonight and watch you know this event or yeah yeah have you, you know, of, of Sky, do you have Sky? Can you record it for me and like bring the VHS tomorrow, tomorrow in school and that kind of thing? So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was like a, it was like a big thing, you know, like, you know, wrestling. So, very excited to talk about, uh, talk about that and uh, delve into that a bit more. So, that, that will be our next episode, unless, um, JFK Jr. does actually come back, in which case we will be covering that. Um, yeah. but, um, Toby, I think it's probably best that you go rest now because you seem quite disorientated from the events of this podcast. I, I am. I'm very <laughs> disorientated. Okay. Um, right. From Toby, who's about to lie down, from Vaughn, who's about to have another drink, and from myself, <laughs> who's going to do both, um, I'll, uh, yes, I'll uh, speak to you in uh, two weeks' time on the Arvind's McMahon episode. So um, see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.